Hello, hello. Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, as ever, joined by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. So I'm in a bit of a state today because I'm sort of in the process of moving. Uh, I'm maybe only 40% packed and I have to move tomorrow. And I'm navigating the moving of three other people as well into the same house. And so uh, everything is just going difficult. And I have a worried little sausage dog currently sitting at my feet. And I apologize if he barks at some point during the recording as he did last time. Um, but anyway, how are you, Gabriel? Yeah, I did. I, I think um, I was very distressed last time uh, that we yes. gathered for two crickets. And it was very sad. Um, and I spent, you know, I took a, I took a weekend to have some fun and to also just be very sad, uh, with a drink, staring at the stars and contemplating my fate in this overdetermined world. And I figured out two steps that I needed to take. Um, I had a, I had an interesting chat with someone who, I had a couple of interesting chats with people who, who like heard the episode and were like, dude, I'm worried about you. <laughs> I didn't but, say anything, but I was thinking it. But there, but there was one chat with with someone who I don't know, someone who I'm who I'm confident has listened to to crickets. Told me so. Definitely has come across our other work and and been very sweet about it. Someone I've sort of met on the street. Um, sweet fellow. Anyway, he struck up a conversation with me earlier in the week. And I was like, I wonder if this is just a coincidence where he said, you know what you should do? You should think about getting a, a, a kind of psychometric test, in particular, the one that Jordan Peterson likes, the big five one, where it measures like conscientiousness, extroversion, introversion. Oh, that, uh, that is it's like, in, uh, um, is that the INGT, whatever? Uh, I know what you're talking about, I think. There's five of them. One of them is conscientiousness, and one of them is something like um, anxiety or sort of neurosis in the in the sense of, you know, how neurotic are you? How easy do you uh, – anyway, because he was saying – this this person, because now I'm, I'm – yeah, a sweet, a sweet dude was saying like how in his relationship – he and his partner did this test and they found that uh, his partner was like very high neurotic and he was like somewhat high neurotic. And that, and, and that's just an obvious, like, okay, here's something you need to worry about in your relationship. Um, it would be better if you, if you sort of contrasted with each other uh, probably with this kind of trait uh, and so it could help each other out. You know, one All could right, be, I think, I think I've, I think I've found yeah. it. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism. That's the one. That's the one. And he postulated that I was that I was um, uh, probably fairly low neurotic, which I think, in a way, is is probably very true. Like you know, I think if you're low neurotic, like quite messy, almost too chilled. I would I would definitely say that I'm almost too chilled. In fact, I would say I'm I'm too chilled some of the time, but. Anyway, then I was thinking about my relationship with my partner and how usually I am like I'm 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 ha I'm there I'm good at giving comfort and, and seeing how things are going to work out and and she's good at seeing problems that I that I might otherwise ignore 
then I thought, sure, I was being like uh, very much the the neurotic one on on Friday last week, and you were being my sweet comforter, Nick. <laughs> well, somebody has to be optimistic. <laughs> we can't, it, you know. It's it's a rule of any uh, group, organization, whatever that. You can't have everyone being an optimist because then you get very silly and you can't have everyone being down in the dumps because then nothing will ever happen. Yeah. Nothing so. is done. Yeah. Anyway. So, so I appreciate, I, I appreciate the fact that you <laughs> try to push back on my absolutely depressive, gloomy outlook. Um, but yeah, anyway, but generally this, doing good. I mean, it's been an interesting week. Yeah. This is, this is kind of the opposite role I play with some of my friends and they say, Things are going to be all right, right? And then yeah. I just chuckle and then don't reply. <laughs> <laughs> Menacingly, like forebodingly. I, 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 one of my friends every now and again, whenever he has load shedding, it's, it's very bored and he asks me, so when do you think load shedding is going to end? And I always just reply with a laugh. Yeah, dude, I want to know when, how come we don't have load shedding like the weather? Right. Like a friend, a friend mentions it to me. We should totally have the news, then the weather, then the load shedding forecast. The, here's the problem: is that the weather is at least vaguely predictable. The load shedding yeah. forecast is not. But, but, I, I also, I, I, I just had a wonderful where do you think it experience. Yeah. <laughs> no, fair enough. When the, I had when a wonderful started, then, experience no um, over the last forty-eight hours, where. Uh, Unannounced city power arrived to replace the substation opposite the house I live in. And only because I went out and actually asked the guys what was going on did I find out about it. And they said, oh, yeah, we're going to dig a, a trench now, and then you're not going to have power for 24 hours. <laughs> and so nice. it was. And the best <laughs> part was <laughs> they turn on the power after 24 hours, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's back. 20 minutes till load shedding, and, of course, we were load shedding. <laughs> 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 the freezer just started clanking back into action uh, indeed in time for another club but luckily my uh, the house i'm currently staying at is fairly well insulated against uh, uh load shedding and that sort of thing it's got a generator and i have spent a lot of money on a battery and inverter so it was yeah. far more survivable than it would have been say a year or two ago for me Dude, I can tell you, I mean, I don't want to get into details, but my mom, oh my word, like someone stole something from the box on the street and then a city power guy from the sounds of it came and fixed it, but fixed it by putting in the the fuse, the, the little transistors upside down so they didn't work. Oh, what fun. So, and then, you know, how, how are any of us to know? So it's like you have to call you to get city power back again. Anyway, uh, you know these things definitely. I I'll never forget James Myberg, the editor of Politics Web. Sort of um, seeing him on one of his rare uh, visits to South Africa. He he runs this like you know pretty wonky, pretty geeky, nerdy. A lot of the former Sunday Times writers: R. W. Johnson, David uh, uh, Bullard. Uh, Andrew Saunders, etc. Also, of course, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, now I'm blanking on the on the guy who writes in a very. He always is using Jewish terminology. Um, Jeremy Gordon. 
Jeremy Gordon. I wanted to say Jeremy Null, and I was like, it's not Jeremy Null, and I don't even want to make that association. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, dude, Jeremy Gordon is, is, is the funniest of them, I think. Um, anyway, James Myberg said the thing about coming back to South Africa is it, 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 it always makes him realize how many little electric shocks there are in the course of the day or the week. It's like it is like a little like, taser or like touching an electric fence. Like it, it, when something like that happens, when you have no power for twenty four hours, or or someone, uh, you know, if you get mugged, it's like quite a serious electric shock. A hijacking is almost like you've been electric. Like you know, at a certain point, it can be, trauma can be, uh, you know, like full on electrotherapy, where you you know have a piece of wood between your teeth that you biting down on while your whole body rattles and you get an almost epileptic fit after which amazingly you can come out kind of refreshed um i've had i've had my own experiences of of pretty violent attacks not certainly not as bad as it gets but you know i i th there is a way in which the brain kind of recalibrates and and i suppose one can get addicted to to the low levels trauma not the high level stuff the, the really high level stuff i think is so terrifying and terrible that you always want to stay away from it but you can almost you can become numbed to the electric shock so you can almost kind of live on that energy and he described himself as sort of not wanting to live on that energy of <laughs> like yeah, caffeine absolutely. is better than 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 aggressive Indeed. treatment or, or aggressive incompetence <laughs> no so that was you taking a long sweep from your your coffee mug um yeah. sh shall we shall we go shall we go over the events of the past couple of days uh, yeah what, i think we should what's, before what's the call, interesting that's happened yeah that's that's happened i think the, the weirdest one i think the weirdest one is the the u.s warning of a potential terrorism attack in San yes Diego. and then i saw this morning the state security minister said it's rubbish. There's no intelligence. They didn't tell us anything. They broke protocol. They're all mean. Uh, 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 uh. Dude, so the first, the first pushback that I heard was yesterday, driving back from like an all-day meeting, listening to the radio. Dude, a bus tried to drive me off the road. It actually did drive me off the road. <laughs> I'm sorry. My kvetch is not done. Dude, there's like load shedding. I'm driving back from four ways, business meeting in four ways. Very nice people. I enjoyed it. Very interesting. But I've got to tell you, four ways is not my favorite part of of this planet of ours. No, four ways. I am not a big fan. I must say, um, it's for me. It's one of the worst parts of the northern suburbs. It's like the older suburb, the older northern suburbs. You know, the yeah. money is is similar, but the soul is not there. Mm. And the infrastructure is 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 wonky, Lou. So there's like I'm on like a single. I'm like on two lanes becoming one lane, and on the one side, it's just like it goes from tar to like a half meter step down and then some gravel. And on the other side, uh, there are these concrete barriers that are, are squeezing two lanes into one lane. There's load shedding, so there's no traffic lights working. And I'm sitting there having this very philosophical consideration. And do bear me out. Right. We, there are thousands of us sitting on the road waiting for like 20 <laughs> minutes to get through one traffic light. And, but every car that I can see has got many lights. Like not just one, two, three, 
and maybe a turning light. Dude, they've got two indicators at the back, two indicator lights at the front. <laughs> they've got big headlights and little headlights. They've got brake lights. They've got often the ones they've got like a, a red light in the middle of the boot, like in the middle of the back. Each car has more, each single car, and there are thousands of them. Each single car has more lights than a traffic light. But that's not all. They also have four wheels on the ground, a spare wheel in the boot, a moving wheel in front of the chair of the driver, which connects to those four wheels, an engine, a gearbox. Do those cars can go forwards or backwards or left or right? It's true. They can, they can constantly move true. around. <laughs> Dude, and they've got air conditioning and they've got radios. Dude, each person is connected to something so much more powerful and complicated than a traffic light. And we can clearly pull it off as humanity to have thousands and thousands and thousands of people in these amazing, they're like Christmas trees. They've got so many lights <laughs> and they can move. They're like moving Christmas trees with many, many lights. And then there's just one Christmas tree with three lights that don't work and it never has to move. And but we can't get every, that right. Everyone's life for the whole day. Somehow yeah, we no. can't do that. Dude, it's like this is the power of centralization versus decentralization, right? Yeah. You can have a thousand cars made that work beautifully, that have the latest technology, um, or even if they don't, that reliably will chug along for 20 years. And then you have a traffic light, which breaks about every three months. (laughs) And all it has to do is flash some lights. Although, to be fair... Those yeah. things often break because they are deliberately vandalized and stolen from. Yeah, no, that's true. So it's, it's it's not entirely just due to the general incompetence of the you know the entirety of our civilizations. Also, because we steal from them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the thing about the car because it can move, you know, it's often moved into into a safe spot. So, yes. yeah, maybe we need traffic lights with wheels that you can sort of drive around and pack away at night. Or something, you know, just have them work during rush hour and then the rest of the time. Anyway, as I'm having this philosophical, uh, this idea, this bus drives me off the road. Um, but I managed to get back on the road and on the Can radio, I just say that, yeah, that I'm so glad that we mostly work from home these days because, yeah, the. Dude. The horror that you can feel the tension in the air, especially when there's load shedding and all the traffic lights are not working. Oh, everyone, even when you the traffic lights have just come on, or if you've moved beyond the load shedding area, everyone on the roads is in a foul mood and they want to just kill you because you're in their way and they just want to go it, home. It's, or mis- go to work it's or misanthropy or on wheels. No, it's Everywhere, incredible. In every direction. And you could you can really feel it, especially when it's in rush hour. It's like a it's like a miasma that sort of permeates the air. <laughs> it's hideous. Dude, I really don't it's I've I've had to do it twice in the last three months. I've had to drive like in rush hour traffic. It with load shedding. I people have to do it every day are definitely like suffering from something like long COVID. You know, but like yeah, no, not like precisely. Yeah, like a hyper-stress, tension, post-traumatic, constant electric shocks. It's like you. It's like every day you, you're getting a mild electric shock therapy. But then on the radio, there was some good news. And the good news was, but this was UJFM, and holler to UJFM. I've often liked it. When I was a student, it was all like in my early 20s. That was a fun radio station. I had some friends who were DJs oh. on it. 
back before I abandoned the podcast, uh, sorry, the radio entirely, I did sometimes used to listen to UJFM and it was pretty hey, good. It was fun. Okay. But I, I don't want to say it's the most reliable thing in the world. The news presenter, <laughs> the news presenter definitely sounded chilled. I would not put the news presenter <laughs> delivery yeah, man. on the neurotic like stuff scale. is happening out there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lady. It was a chilled lady. She was like, you know, Ramaphosa has made a statement to say that uh, the Americans broke protocol and the terrorist threat is actually environmentalists who are threatening to throw mashed potatoes on a painting in Santon Library. And then there was a little jingle. And then she was like, said her name and said, I am the news presenter for UJ FM. And then she said the same spiel over again and then moved on to the next stories. And I was like, so I've Googled it a little bit. I haven't gone deep enough to confirm or disconfirm. But I did like the thought that News 24, the, the morning after the American statement came out warning that there's going to be a terrorist attack in Santa on Saturday, uh, News 24 um, said, we've spoken with three sources who won't have their names disclosed in the SSA, the, the, the State Security Agency of South Africa. And these guys all say that this is ISIS or something like that, some you know militant Islamic uh, effort to go after right. either the Gay Pride event or the Nick Rabinovitz comedy show. He's a Jew. He makes fun of everyone. And Gay Pride I, is I, obviously... Uh, I, I don't know if there's any intelligence to support right. this, but I also saw some people speculating that it could be something to do with the Tigray and Ethiopian federal government peace talks, which are, I think, happening at the moment in Joburg. Well, I mean, this is also... This is not what the News 24, this is not what the SSA told News 24's guys. But right. I, when I was reading it, I was like, mm, dude, and it, look, the journalists are good, Peter Detoy, Kyle Cowan. Um, but I did feel like, you know, you can report what the SSA is saying, but does that mean the SSA guys have any idea what is going on? Like, if you had asked me, I would have immediately said, I think it's gay. It's, you know, I knew it was, I knew there was a gay pride event. I would have been like, who's going to go after gay pride? Probably the logical. Yeah, probably closest. ISIS or some similar feature. With Mozambique's over there. Yeah, I've yeah. been to some actual intelligence briefings with, uh, you know, security NGOs. And um, uh, it is, it's like in the intelligence world, it's a pretty obvious talking point that South Africa has thus far avoided um, Islamic militant terrorism, but that there's a lot of reason that's, to suspect that we could suffer. That's not entirely it. true. There was, yeah. I believe, an attack on a Shiite mosque in South Africa a few years ago. And I'm not sure if it was linked to any of the big militant groups, but it was definitely from the world of Sunni extremism that that did this. Um, but it, it was kind of, I think, not not hugely covered. Um, I, I don't think it was a really big story because, uh, you know, it was just like another person in SA gets shot. Right. But, yeah, I mean. So not zero. It, it, we but we like have been very, quite, yeah, but like very low and surprisingly low considering, you know. Um, How useless we are more than anything. Yes. Like I, was, I was explaining <laughs> to someone, it's like, dude, the Guptas, like it. I remember Rian Milan once saying it kind of, he was once kind of expressing sympathy for them because he was like, pro or admiration actually, like a decade ago, um, long before in the early days. He was like, dude, these guys must have been sitting around a table and thinking like, how do we make a whole bucket of money like of of of, of 
and then turn that bucket into a swimming pool of money. Well, you know, let's find a corrupt government to embezzle funds out of and into and all kinds of stuff. And you look on the map, you look on news, you look on Twitter, and you're like, wow, South Africa. Got, it's got some cash floating around. And look at, you know, <laughs> look at Zuma. Dude, this is going to be easy. Here we go. <laughs> if you are sitting in Tehran or Sorry, Kabul, just, to, just, yeah. just to interrupt. That attack I'm talking about was in 2018. And a group of armed men entered a Shiite mosque in Durban uh, after Friday prayers and killed the imam and injured two other people. And I think also set it on fire, but uh, I don't think it actually burned down. Well, and have there been any consequences to the perpetrators? Anyone caught? Anyone? I don't think so. Because the point I'm trying to make is that if if I was into terrorism and I had Twitter, I would see the July riots of last year and be like, well, 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 you know, the juice to squeeze ratio in South Africa is really tasty uh, for how much money and people there are. Um, the ability of the government to stop bad people from doing bad things is, is extremely uh, low. So let's, let's get in there. It's, you know, it's, it's the house with no front gates and no burglar bars and, um, like a, a sausage dog <laughs> as a, you know. Hey, man, don't of... talk that way about sausage dogs. They're very brave. <laughs> anyway, so, so uh, you know, I, I kind of hope. On the other hand, like, dude, these, these mashed potato people, I'm not into Are the they just the worst? I, dude, I, I haven't wanna... seen anyone except a totally insane people praising them. Did fire the cannon firing people into the sun thing that is bring back the death penalty for the mashed potato people i don't think i think if you do major acts of terrorism you should go to jail for life i think if you throw mashed potatoes on a van gogh you need i've to be seen online in a cask of boiling hot mashed potatoes what's the group they belong to stop oil now i think it is yeah that's so so the uh, I've seen like sort of radical climate change activists, the kind of people who think that we should basically ban the petrol engine in 20 years from now, or, yes. or, or if not sooner, sooner, attacking these people as lunatics. <laughs> they are so fringe. But I'm just in- amazed by how these things keep happening, and yet uh, a lot of these kind of big art galleries don't seem to have really stepped up their security much. No, man, they mustn't. What ca- I, I think that... Um... Running a gallery is a very difficult thing because, I mean, the way that the there are certain things like the Magna Carta, which sits in a steel box behind six inches of uh, glass. That's not only bulletproof; it's like you could fire heavy ordnance straight directly at that thing. Uh, It's it's basically a mobile bomb shelter. Like if you if you want to avoid bombs falling out the sky, think, go hide. The American Magna Declaration Carta. of Independence is behind some other sort of thing. I mean, there was a whole movie about the things they had to do to steal the Declaration of Independence. What was it? National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. Yes, it's a fun that film. Was, that was a very, <laughs> very fun, very silly movie. But you know, but there is there, there's a real cost to that, and there's a really amazing thing about being able to go into a gallery where you 
are able to get up close and personal with uh, amazing works of art. And, and, and really the thing about, you know, in order to defend those things, like, you know, one thing you can do to defend a work of art is put a, a plane in between the work and the eyeball, like a glass right. or plastic, but that interrupts the viewing experience. And it it might do so subtly, but the whole point of looking at it, Van Gogh, or a no, no, I take your point com completely. Yeah. You don't want to put it behind a velvet rope, and then it's you know everyone is twenty kilometers back staring at it through binoculars. Yeah, it's, that's hideous. Uh, or put some massive sheet of bulletproof glass. That's also hideous. But a lot of these guys, they like first press themselves up against the painting. I saw one who was, uh, I can't remember. Well, what, they're sticking themselves. The they super glue themselves to the painting. Yeah, so they 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 first, though, um, they've, they've done it in different ways. I saw one who pressed his face up against it and then tried to pour a can of canned tomatoes on it when his face was, like, stuck to it. And uh, then the other one stuck their hand to the wall. I mean, it's just... Dude, I want to know how they get... Have, Security should not be letting the mashed potatoes into the into the gallery. I mean, yeah. that's a good <laughs> but also, yeah, aren't you supposed to check these things for bombs? You might as well find a huge pile of mashed potatoes. Stop it. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. My mom likes to tell the story of when she was in Italy, I think on like one of her first sort of tours, um, or tours of Europe. She like... I can't remember because there's all these different cycles of renovation, but sort of going into some fabulous old chapel and, the, uh, you know, in, um, uh, oh goodness. What's the, what's the main art town in Italy? Not Venice, not Rome. Not, I don't know. Milan? Genoa. Not, no, 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 uh, no, 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 Tuscany, Florence, I don't know. Florence, 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 there we go. Tuscany is a, a, yeah, a region and Florence is the biggest city in it. Yeah. So in Florence, going to like one of the main ones, and like there's like some Michelangelo statue, let's say David. And it's like dudes can just like, there's nothing stopping you from going up to him and chipping off his nose and walking away with it in your pocket. And I was like, what a twisted idea. No one else thought of that. <laughs> of course, they're not stopping that from happening because why, who other than like an artist would would see that statue and be like, mm, well, I can't take the whole thing. But if I went and took chipped off his nose, that would be an amazing keepsake. <laughs> like a magical totem of anyway, but I think the maybe I'm butchering this, but I think the the the, you know the, the, the you point know the is Mona that Mona Lisa was stolen once, right? Well it's all been you know, a lot of things have been stolen. Edvard I mean, Munch's I mean, scream has been from... stolen three times. I think <laughs> the Louvre, and it was stolen by I think an Italian nationalist who was outraged that the French had it. Well, if you're gonna, did we? When last did we drink to Appia? <laughs> He's got this tiny little book called like Politics <laughs> yes. and Culture or something, which is where he sort of makes the case for why you shouldn't just go and repatriate everything. You know, it's fine. Leave, leave 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 stuff in the british museum even if it comes from greece or egypt or whatnot but this is one of the points that he makes and it is being undermined it's like you know it's like safer in these places you know let it be where it's safe and where it's going to get well, the most eyeballs. yeah apparently not <laughs> apparently human beings are just uh ugh, ugh. it's uh it's 
anyway, it is what it is. So maybe it's the mashed potatoes people. Maybe it's uh, dudes that don't like the idea of a Jewish dude telling jokes about Muslims. Maybe it's uh, homophobes who don't like the idea of gays having orgasms. I mean, it's all pretty awful uh, to think right. that uh, it's a real threat. But And maybe it's not a real threat. I mean, maybe there's some, some neurotic person no, no, in the American office. You, you, you could also always have the thing where there is a threat. They say that they know about it, and then the threat is called off because yeah. the guys are worried about being caught, which is one of the reasons why you might announce something like this in the hope of preventing it. Right. I mean, I do think that it's the sort of Ramaphosa move of, of criticizing the U.S. is pretty bold because <laughs> on any given Saturday, thanks, there's like a gathering in the Sanson Convention Center. Lots and lots of people come into the mall and all that to the square. You know, they could, they could anytime be a terrorist attack and people wouldn't really blame Ramaphosa or the government. But if, if on if on Thursday the Americans are like there's going to be an attack, and on Friday you're like nah, there's not going to be an attack, and then on Saturday there's an attack, whoo, you're going to yeah. have a very and uh, and the, so, the ISIS so they guys would have... in Mozambique so have I... threatened us. They did yeah. say that if we sent any help to the Mozambican government, that they would carry out terrorist attacks here. So it's not yeah. like and they're not a but by the sounds of it, they are not a Mickey Mouse outfit, and they are hooked into that network. So I really yeah. wouldn't dismiss it offhand. Well, but this is what makes me wonder whether um, I wouldn't dismiss it offhand. But if if the Americans didn't say what kind of attack it's going to be, and if if it is the case that they had an idea of what kind of attack it was going to be, and it was going to be a mashed potatoes attack, then and then News Twenty Four is speaking to random dudes, not random dudes, but speaking to incompetent people in the SSA who don't actually know anything at all and are just trying to put two and two together and seem like they know something when they don't. Um, then, because they don't want to seem like they're behind the Americans. Like, oh, the Americans know about this. We should know about it too, but they don't know about it. Then I could see why it would make sense for Ramaphosa to come out and say, look, guys, it's not nearly that bad. The Americans broke protocol here. We wish they wouldn't do that. Um, please go ahead as usual. And please don't cancel the gay pride parade. Because, I mean, the, the, the main upshot is that as far as I know, the comedy show and the pride parade have not been canceled. The, yeah, no, the Ethiopian thing is going forward. So the the gay pride parade, I think they even said, look, you know, we've been told there isn't a threat, but regardless, like the whole point of this is to not be afraid and like yeah. celebrate ourselves. So we're not going to cancel it. So, Unless but on that version of very very deliberate, you know, it, clear evidence that says we found a dude's text messages and they say they're going to blow up bomb X here or whatever. Anyway, I'm just I don't want to discount the possibility that there is that Ramaphosa could be wrong. It was also maybe the Americans were wrong too, actually. Uh, they could be, but I just trust them more because you know, I think that if the SSA does anything um other than spying on other factions of the ANC, uh <laughs> and the opposition, probably, although I don't yeah. know that for sure. Um, but I've heard stories from 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 various opposition party people who said talk about very strange things happening on calls and stuff sometimes. But anyway, uh, they if they do anything other than nefarious things, it's probably spy on the Americans because there is a section of the ANC which is absolutely convinced that the CIA is plotting a coup. And that's not a joke. They say this all the time. 
I remember Gweta Matasha has done things like he said in a speech, we know who is going to the American embassy. We've got our eyes on you. You won't overthrow us. Uh, I know that a couple of years ago, back in the sort of early Zuma years, there was a <laughs> an MP who said that uh, on the defense committee, who said that we need to reorient our military to protect us from an American invasion. So the, the ANC very aggressively dismissing any claims by the CIA is kind of like an instinctual sort of thing, I think, for a lot of, for a lot of their leadership. Right, right. Or, no, very fair. I think there's a lot of paranoid um, suspicion. Probably a lot of projection. I mean, not to get too heavy, but I do think part of the issue is that anyone as high up in the ANC as Gwede Mantashe is, you know, anyone who's been to the being in the National Executive Council basically has been confronted with enough evidence to know that of the 20, 25,000 largely apolitical, innocent, poor black people that were murdered in the People's War in the period between 86 and 94, you know, the majority were killed by ANC dudes. Um, and the only way that that history can be ignored in the way that it's ignored is by, you know, starting with the thought that it's all third force domestically, lots right. of like white gnats dressed up in black face paint and boy patong. Um, and any IFP guys are like, no, it really was me. I did it. I'm sorry, but it was me and I did it and no one paid me to do it. Must be sort of a liar. And that behind the third force is the is the the West, shall we say, uh, is some kind of grand imperialist uh, secret hidden hand. And yeah, it does it does like it is a it is a it's just a weird thing about a country that hasn't begun to grapple with the most difficult thing about its uh, history in the last 30 years is that right. intelligence which necessarily lives in the shadows becomes way more complicated if like a whole chapter of history is is very much in the middle of the shadows uh, right so right. it's all it's all it's, it's a weird story but it's not the only story of the week i suppose my favorite can i just say my favorite story of the week go ahead the this thing with gorongwana so which you know, thing was gorongwana well, what, just the fact that he gave a budget speech? Yeah, we, we, we've been calling on him all year to grant exemptions to procurement, uh, to race-based procurement. The government spends one trillion rand a year on procurement. Okay, It's a huge amount, even if it's just 2% that you can save. Uh, and it's much more than 2% by, going, by maximizing value for money, by cutting the red tape. Uh, it's a good idea. Because what's 2% of a trillion? A lot. <laughs> 20 billion. You know, and if it's 20%, you see? that's what I said a lot, <laughs> 200 billion rand a year. Um, and on paper, the max, you know, on paper, it's allowed to get 10 or 20% premium to businesses in procurement on the basis of race. So, uh, you know, our argument is not that it's, I actually think one of the weird things um, about this is that this, you know, granting these exemptions really would be good for Obviously, they'd be good for the whole country and for the poor, but I think they'd directly be good for black businesses 
um, because of the Zonda report. You know, Zonda, Coco, the one of the big uh, SCOM dudes has just been fired. Zonda gets into that story and in and the Brian Malefi story, but the the Brian Malefi story is 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 one of the most clear cut examples of well, where black businesses were kicked out of yes. pro- the procurement, the supply chain to ESCOM and replaced with other black businesses in the name of BE. Right. They, and this is the latter were not was... black, they were just more ANC. Exactly. This is a point I very, I very clumsily tried to make on the Daily Friend this week, but I, I, that was, yeah, that was not a good episode. I botched that intro completely. But that there's this very direct line in how BE is used as a cover for the catered deployment into the private sector in a lot of ways, yeah. right? Yeah. And for funneling resources to the ANC's patronage network. Um, you say, well, you know, you need certain representativity on your board, and wouldn't you know, we've already got all of the candidates who will correctly represent their race <laughs> for yeah. your board and uh you know their, their their names start with g and end with montage you know <laughs> did the the in from volume one chapter one you've got the saa story where zuma says he, he zuma says like at least 10 percent or 20 percent of whatever of saa inputs have to come from township he used some it was like small or rural businesses or something like that and it was like how do we qualify this and then eventually it was taken up um to mean like it's a it's a, like a be requirement and literally businesses that had more be points were kicked off of the tender process for not having enough be points then the business with the most be points was the only one left then they found that that business can't do it so then they had to do an emergency tender process and let the guptas do it that was done multiple oh, isn't, times isn't it beautiful <laughs> It's it's so, it's actually, you know, yeah. the the you know people are like ah, oh, you know, this this is a sort of kind of grumpy person you find in the country. It's like ah, oh, ANC, they're all just so stupid. No, yeah. guys, this is genius. This is yeah. genius. This is like looking at a system and yeah. saying how can we completely bend it to our will while yeah. still technically being within the system. Yeah, and this this is this takes power. If only we used our energy for good, is the real problem. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, anyways, you know, the, the, the ultimate abstract argument um, is that, and the argument that the Zonda report makes is that procurement's already very complicated. We already have a huge amount of procurement that we have to do and not all the world's best procurers in South Africa. So, and, the, yeah, and all the anti-corruption stuff has created an incredible amount of paperwork and procedure that needs to be gone through, which just leaves more room for errors, loopholes. So the more the more discretion there is, the harder it is yeah. to have accountability. The opposite of discretion is reviewability. If if a decision is like a judgment call, the whole point is that means it's hard to review. You know, how can I explain why I did this instead of that? Uh, I just I just know. You know, I was getting good Ryan, vibes. I was getting good vibes. That's why, and and look, you know, Beethoven might not be able to say why da 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 instead of da 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 da. It's it's not it's not up for review. It's not up for judicial review. But something like okay, there were two products and they were both as reliable and they could both come as quickly and the financing relationship was the same, but the one cost twenty percent more than the other. Why did you go for it? Well, that's a bright line test, and so you know the the. The, the resources add this discretion. They create a weighing exercise between value for money and other considerations. And that weighing exercise is necessarily uh, uh, 
discretionary and and so difficult to review and so just get rid of not get rid of that entirely he can't say that be against the constitution to do it entirely but there's a way out of it anyway so we have been petitioning Gonangwana to grant the exemptions he's got the power under the procurement framework act in section three to grant exemptions if it's in the national interest from race law and procurement and he did grant those exemptions at the start of the year when there was this little confusion for a month and we said in the budget statement dude do it again tell the organs of state that they must ask for it and you will grant it and what he said was guys don't even ask me just do your own procurement which <laughs> is not as good it would be better if he said what we said he yeah said, so it's pretty good so when you first when you first uh were speaking to to all of us about this i kind of got the image of um, a, a bit of a hospital pass here, which is like, oh, this is pretty contentious, and I don't really want to make a call here, so I'm going to throw the ball at the at the SOEs and the companies and things and say, oh, no, you do it. You have made the decision. You take the flag. I'm not involved. Don't come to Treasury. Don't blame us. I'm not. Ugh. So, 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 but I think that is exactly what he's done. But, but what organs of state need to do is explicitly draft value for money. Uh, procurement policies. They need to quote yeah, the, well, the report, right? and they must concurrently apply, but they must apply the policy while requesting before, file the request at the same time that you apply the policy. Then he can grant or fail to grant the request, and other entities can come and sue you or not sue you. My suspicion is as follows. I think that other organs of, that 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 the national prosecuting authority, dude. Imagine Shamila, but imagine the national prosecuting authority says we are now going to sue ESCOM. We're going to take ESCOM to court because they've got a value for money procurement policy in place, and we and this is terrible. They're not going to have a sympathetic time in the media. Some people are going to say, "Yeah, look, why not be capital?" But you're going to see a lot of black businesses are going to keep getting the business. It's just they're going to be charging ten or twenty percent less, and. The argument in court is there's a lot of technical stuff. It's been a very exciting for me week for me going over this with some lawyers. But it boils down to this. Let's say Nicholas is ESCOM and I'm uh, Black First oh, no. Land First. And Nicholas oh, has gone oh. for a value for money thing and I'm suing Nicholas and I'm saying that's unconstitutional. Why is it unconstitutional, asks Nicholas. And I say... Well, because you're not advancing or protecting protected groups, disadvantaged groups. Nicholas can say, here's the amazing thing. If we get value for money, we reduce load shedding and we increase the amount of money that's left over after we buy a transformer or a transistor or a cable or whatever. There's more money left over at the end of it that we can either use in ESCOM to fight load shedding or that can go back to the fiscus and can be used to pay down the debt or that can go to paying for social grants. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, you know what's better than giving uh, one black person a hefty tender for a couple million? It's giving 40 million electricity. <laughs> yeah, and increasing Let's put the, it to a vote, guys. The, the, <laughs> On increasing that, the jobs. Dude, yeah, I, I'm going to have to... You, your argument ends up being it's better to get more for less. And that that's better for everyone. And it's also especially better for poor, unemployed, uneducated black people that are that are doing the worst. And that right. the kind of people who are not going to be given a tender. Yes. So, right. And then I've got to say, no, you, 
your system is discriminating. The system I want is you have to only protect black people that own businesses. Who are already educated, connected, own businesses, and are what uh, in a different, when we're wearing a slightly different hat, when we take off our race nationalist hat and put on our communist hat, are the evil capitalist class who need to be crushed. So those are the ones we need to benefit. But the, 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 the working masses, as they are sometimes called when we're wearing our communist hat. No, no, those ones are... The unworking masses, yes. Yeah, the unworking masses in South Africa's case, I suppose, because of our unemployment. But uh, no, those ones are the ones who must be disadvantaged. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Makes total sense. Dude, this argument's never going to... I really think, I really believe, and as a technical matter, it, it, it probably gets reviewable under a rationality test. Uh, and, and just... Just for a bit of it's the one technicality. It's like you know, in law, when we challenged, like we didn't, uh, uh, when 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 lockdown and mask mandates and such like um, laws and regulations were challenged, it was a rationality test that those laws had to pass. In other words, the government promulgating the law didn't have to prove that it was the best way to achieve what it wanted to achieve. It didn't have to prove that it was the most cost-effective way. It didn't have to prove that there were no negative side effects. It just had to prove that there was some reasonable chance that doing the one thing might result in the other thing coming about. So in other words, you know, if there's one scientific study or one expert out there who says this is going to help, that's kind of enough. And it's and you can't strike it down. Rationality is a very it's a very easy test to pass, but it's it, the person who has to pass the test is the one setting the policy, and the challenger has a very high obstacle. They've if they want to challenge this successfully, they've got to say it's completely crazy. How could you ever think that right. locking people down is going to help, etc. So with this, if an organ of state sets the policy. That's the government setting the policy, whether it's a university or an SOE or a municipality that's being run by whomever. And the challenge then has to come from the other side. And that challenge has to show not just that we think there's a better way to help previously disadvantaged people, or we think your way is not the best. They have to show that there's no rational connection at all between maximizing value for money and helping poor black South Africans. I would love to That's see something. That's going to be a tough move out there. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, and I'm excited. I really am excited. If we can get some, if you know, if some organs of state can can just can just start thinking about helping the poor by getting more for less, so that there's more left over for the rest, and there's you know, in the case of uh, things like ESCOM and Sunroll, things actually work better, so that there's more jobs left over for the rest, more job opportunities. Dude, I think that that could really, it is, and, and it is, uh, it's, it, you know, I've, I think I recommended the book a while ago, but like after John Ken Berman died, I went to visit his partner and he lent me, JK, a, a, a copy of the si South African Silent Revolution. And it just is inspiring to read about, so just in such a clinical way about like businesses, schools, universities, uh, just, and more than anything, ordinary South Africans violating the laws of apartheid from the 70s, the 80s, and the mm. 90s, and pushing in a quiet, go-forward, practical way. We've I, got, we need some of that now. We need businesses, organs of state, municipalities, little councillors. We just need lots and lots of people to, like, flip in. Just 
Occupy the space. Do the right thing. And then face the challenge. Because if you face the challenge, if you've already made the step and then you have to face the challenge, I think that the Constitution's on your side. And I think that Not even the most rabid media is going to be like, what the hell? How bad is this guy? Yeah, yeah, this guy's no, getting exactly. more for less. <laughs> exactly. No, I think I think that's that's a really strong argument. Um, I'm uh, long before I heard of the silent revolution. When you know, when I was so young, and my parents were trying to explain to me like what was like how apartheid worked and how silly it was, and in, in so many ways, right? And they talked about uh, I think because my grandfather before he went into politics, I think he did construction or he ran a construction company or something, and. Uh, he didn't have, you know, there weren't uh, enough white applicants for a certain job that he wanted to to uh, have in the building thing. So he would hire black guys who could do it. And then they had to have a lookout for the apartheid inspector so that when he came, the guy would have to change jobs very quickly and pretend <laughs> like he was more low skilled than he actually was. <laughs> what the <laughs> it was like it was like uh, you know you couldn't be a bricklayer but you could be a laborer if you were black something like that right you couldn't right. be like a, a professional bricklayer and so there had to yeah. be a, a, a he would have to suddenly change jobs and be like no no I'm just digging a hole I'm just digging a hole and then he would go back to doing what he was paid to do <laughs> it's, just, it's just madness yeah, uh, it's mad and, mad, and yeah mad. so the yeah. silent revolution is is a very powerful way of of dismantling something I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think the key, I think part of the key, the 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 thing to unlock, it tends to end up in less that, people being killed than other types of revolutions, which exactly. Is nice as well, and and the thing to unlock is is the notion that, I mean, clearly what your grandfather was doing was was in 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 hiring the black guy, and you know, uh, having a win win skills thing. There's something good going on there. It's clear who the bad guy is. It's the government that's enforcing the law and the government that's requiring the 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 lie. And there's like and a think, camaraderie between. I think the, this kind of stuff is is precisely what drive drove him into politics. Actually, was just coming face to face with this idiocy, and then he yes. went on to join the Progressive Party. Yes. So and 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 the and the and I think the analogous point to make here is that you're doing the right thing if you're trying to maximize value for money. If you're trying to buy a bit of infrastructure or or a bit of equipment that costs a hundred million rand for a hundred million rand, instead of buying it for two hundred million rand and going through a series of non-value adding intermediaries whose only function is to grease the wheels of, or, you know, is to tell the lie, to tell the, the modern day lie in this job environment. You're doing the right thing by by. Uh, by avoiding that, anyway, I'm 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 excited about Gordon Guana's. Uh, I call it the wild dog whistle. <laughs> he gave he he blew the wild dog whistle on on going forward with pragmatism and non-racialism, and it's South Africa has a great tradition of of, of it. I think there's something Finance so beautiful about the fact that since Jan Hofmeier, in fact, since wasn't Jan Smuts a finance minister <laughs> under Louis Boerter? Like since the I, I'm very not sure he might have been. <laughs> since the it, it's, it's true. Finance ministers you know, have been like, guys, please stop being so racist. Please our, ignore our, our reserve crap. bank <laughs> and our finance ministry yes. have have are, are actually they are very much institutions. Yeah. And they have 
always been the thing that's kept us, I think, in many ways from the abyss. Every Having time everyone else, in the yeah, everyone else in the political system has been completely unreasonable, insane, pursuing some stupid race nationalist idea, revolution, whatever. There's something about being in that ministry that makes you go, oh, no. When you have to sit there with the books and you realize the problem and you go, Dude, oh, no, no. It's very expensive. <laughs> that is the thing about racism. It is so yes. expensive to not look at what really matters in the world and instead fixate on some romantic notion of bloodlines. This, it's extremely this is, expensive. <laughs> this is always the point I kind of try to make. You know, there's this kind of story that uh, everyone in South Africa, you know, the whites, you all benefited from apartheid and you all are so much better off because of oppression, that kind of thing. It's like, guys, no, racism was super expensive in for everyone. It made everyone's lives worse. If we were in a less racist place, we'd all be much richer. Black, white, doesn't matter. Yeah, And we've just pissed away money for decades and decades and decades on different strains of racism. Yeah. And all it does is waste our time and make our lives worse. I mean, th there's a very nice example of um, a case in which there are two measures of the same thing. So one measure is relative. Of course, apartheid uh, placed people in South Africa relatively better and worse off according to race. So white people right, were exactly. better off thanks to apartheid on the relative measure of as against uh, Indian colored and black people. But if you measure it against either the abstract potential, the counterfactual of where we could have been if we'd been non-racial, or the exactly, reality of say. other countries that don't that didn't yes. have it, uh, then you see that, yes, also white people suffered under apartheid. Right. Not like, just in the rather, sense that it was, like Alistair Spark said, you have to be racist. So if you go and write Steve Biko's My Hero, you, you get arrested for breaking the Anti-Terrorism Act because he's, a, uh, uh, at certain points in history, a, a person whose name you're literally not allowed to publish. Um, but also in the sense that you're worse off because you're in a, you're in a stultified market, absent even the sanctions, stultified just by the deliberately bad education system and the deliberately right, because racism vicious is, is, yeah. is, is super into the, 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 the fixed pie, you know, fighting over the, the scraps kind of mentality, yeah. zero sum mentality, right? It's about being the top crab in the bucket rather than, you know, getting the crabs out of the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's better to be the top crab, for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But no denying still, that. Yeah. Still a crab in a bucket. <laughs> yeah. And let's all get out the bucket, dude. I did. I. 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 Uh, I think we should listen to the people who are looking at the books and pulling their hair out and being like, "Please, can someone stop all this madness? Just buy the good thing cheaply and plug it in and make." turbine spin so that we let's, let's do it for 50 years yeah and if and if and if we still want to we can go back to the stupid ways of doing things if it doesn't work out let's just okay, try for 50 years we dude, how long has south africa been around for 112 something like that yeah yeah so uh, that's not even as much time as we've been being stupidly racist for so let's no, uh, let's try yeah 112 so let's let's try the let's try the, for fifty years. It's not even it's half as long as we were stupidly racist for. Dude, thirty years. Give us thirty-five. <laughs> yeah, thirty years. We'll set off for thirty. You let the Institute of Race Relations run the country for thirty-five years. You can have it back for eternity. 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. And yeah, you can you can complain if it's not to your liking, but I, I have a strong feeling that it would be a little bit better. So, dude, maybe this is a good segue into... We, we, we don't want this to be a two and a half hour long episode. Um, <laughs> yes, no, I have... Have moving things to do, unfortunately. But uh, Nicholas has people he's got to go beat up. But I, I want to talk about a, a case in America, anyway. where America. I mean, you know, fun fact about America is that uh, I I looked it up. As far as I can tell, the average Black American earns more than the average White South African. Right. Which is an amazing figure to just remind people of, if they, you know, to to illustrate this exact point about you know what's going on in the bucket versus what's going on across. Um, across uh, national borders, and uh, and insofar as that indicates what what could could have been happening here, the 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 case that I want to talk about is it's I'm just going to call it the Milligan case. Evan Milligan is the named complainant, um, and descendant of slaves, uh, black dude in Alabama, unhappy about how. Alabama has drawn its electoral map and sort of been joined. The, the federal government has joined his case uh, as a various NGOs and academics. And they have alleged that Alabama, which is a deep South traditionally extremely, you know, it has a very racist history. Like, like I, w- I think it's fair to say that um, there is more pugnation like more white people killed black people because they're black in Alabama than in South Africa uh, in the last 200 years. There's probably a case to be made for that for sure. So I, I, I think I once even read somewhere um, that at least some of the inspiration for apartheid was directly drawn from the Jim Crow South places like Alabama during the yeah. beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. So what's this case about? Alabama's black population is 27% of the total population. Alabama has seven districts. So, you know, imagine it like seven provinces or, you know, seven major areas. Well, seven um, constituencies, aren't they? Constituencies is a good way to put it. That's exactly what it is. Um, Of course, each district is like a congressional district. So in their system, each district will send off one congressman. Um, and only one of those districts is majority black. So one out of seven is about 14%. So 14% of the districts are majority black, but 27% of the population is majority black. So if you wanted the number of districts to be majority black that matches the proportion of the population, you'd have to have a second district. Then it'd be like 28% of the districts are majority black and 27% of the people are majority black. And so if everyone only voted on racial lines, you'd have two districts that would elect black congressmen and five districts that would elect white congressmen. And that would roughly line up, that would line up really well within a percentage With the demographics, right. With the demographics of the whole state. But as it is, if all the black people only vote for black people and all the white people only vote for white people, you're going to get 14% black representation and out of a seven, 27% population, and that is illegal. That's unconstitutional. According to the district court, three judges, that's a federal court, two of those judges appointed by Trump, I think, um, 
So, you know, uh, uh, I'm just, I don't want to get too deep, deeply into calling that kind of thing out. I'm just trying to say, um, Chief Justice John Roberts um, said that the order to redraw the map, the order to say, look, what Alabama's done is wrong. You can't have just one out of seven. It's got to be two out of seven of the population is 27% black. That order is how uh, courts have been thinking about this kind of problem. Uh, but the question is, sh- is that how courts should be thinking about this kind of problem? And that's and that's what was debated or argued, really, um, last week at the Supreme Court of the United States. And it was argued for an hour and a half, but it is, you know, maybe two hours, just about the most intense hour and a half or two hours that you can listen to. And before saying anything else, I want to say two things. One of them is Justice Jackson, uh, who's the the newest member of the court, um, Biden's appointee, um, uh, I was worried about what she had said in the in the Andy Worrell case. She yeah, she yeah, really was sense. confused, and it, and and in this case, and I've listened to a bunch of others, really uh, very interesting, like very confident, very on point. She's like any worries that I had um, have been dispelled for me about her intelligence and capacity and confidence, but especially her confidence on the court and her ability to 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 deliver, I think, a, to play a very important role on that court. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, I kind of do have a feeling about what's right and wrong in this case or which way it should go, but I'm not a... I'm a little bit in two minds, but like even, I don't know. I think it is, it's it's pretty clear, like listening to that, the, the second time, especially when I listened to the oral arguments and tried tracking down some of the case laws and, and, and reading through the precedents that they were referring to, that, that they really are all smarter and like better informed about this uh, than either of us. And <laughs> certainly the me, and it is, and it's, and it's humbling that, and it's, and it's very fascinating kind of experience to to be confronted by kind of a racialist non-racialist argument where both sides are brilliant brilliant minds um trying to it's really a steel man exercise of clash of racialism versus non-racialism so that's the that's the that's the preface okay the argument Kind of, I don't know, Nick. You must interrupt me if I say anything that that doesn't make sense, or mm-hmm. I don't really know the right way to go about it. But I think um, one thing that that people should know is that Congress passes the laws. That's America's Parliament, America's National Assembly, and, and NCOP. And Congress passed a law in the seventies, I think it was, saying. Um, Look, we're very worried about states uh, packing and cracking, cracking apart black areas, and then and then you know if there's and then packing yeah, uh, because tiny portions of black people into white areas so that they'll never win and the and the white races will always because because each state gets to uh, every time because I think every time there's a 
census or no, it's every two years. I think it's for every election. They have to yeah. make draw the boundaries again so that roughly equal numbers of people are in each constituency. Um, and each state has a slightly different way of doing that. Uh, but generally speaking, what happens is the party in control of the state or with the majority in the, in the state legislatures and stuff gets together and they draw the lines and they often draw them in such a way as to make them politically advantageous for themselves. Gerrymandering. Um, gerrymandering, right. And that's why if you go and you look at the congressional maps of these places, you'll see some of these districts are like squiggledy-piggledy things that go like a Ooh. snake through the state. <laughs> you would never in a million acid trips come up with some of those maps. Yeah, they they're like clearly way yeah. out. <laughs> um, and 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 one of the one of the uh, so this law was aimed at making sure that you basically just didn't get such gerrymandering that was targeted along racial lines. That would and just allow, to explain, yeah, yeah. Um, something that's worth knowing is that the the sort of elite, you know, founding father, I think, proper understanding of how it's supposed to work is that for the most part, it is left up to politicians to redraw the lines. And that does remind us of Brecht's famous poem about like, you know, the authoritarian communists are very frustrated. The people didn't vote for the right government. And they're like, well, can we just elect a different people then? Uh, you know, the, the idea, you know, must the dissolve the people should, and elect another. Yes. The citizens should be electing the politicians, choosing the politicians. But with a gerrymandering system where every election cycle politicians get to redraw the lines, the politicians get to choose the people who are going to vote for them. That sounds silly, but actually, if you just take a deep breath, relax, take a step back, you can see how the political assist, allowing politicians to do this, if they do it too crazily, that in itself can cause a political backlash, which can get them voted out of office. And a politician that's like, uh, or political party or political grouping that's like, doesn't want to meddle too much, can be rewarded uh, by advertising themselves as being like, we don't want to get your votes by gerrymandering all that much. We want to get your votes by better service delivery. So that's that's the structure. It's supposed to largely be left up to the political process. There are some limits to that. And obviously, if it's being used in a super, ra in super racist, if it's being used in a racist way, that's the kind of thing that needs to be limited from above by Congress and with the courts because... Uh, that's exactly the kind of um, situation in which majoritarian rule becomes mob rule. And the right. point of anti-democratic institutions, it's like the constitution, down, yeah, is, to, is to stop that. that. So, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the funny things about the gerrymandering problem is often that uh, even the minority party will actually cooperate with the gerrymandering because the goal of the politicians is not necessarily always to boost their party per se, but to protect themselves. So they will uh, agree with the larger party and say, yeah, yeah, no, you can draw this district which makes it less likely that our party will get two seats so long as it makes me safer More likely, and guaranteed. Yeah. yeah, so that I don't have to campaign as hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's not I, a great system. Yeah, it's not an I, idea. I, oh, and, and, and to be fair, some states have since experimented with different ways of reforming this so i think some of them have like a supposedly independent, independent panel yeah, yeah that, that that draws the things and i think there was a big kerfuffle in new york actually this year where um the democrats who controlled it drew the boundaries in such a way and i think they violated 
their own independent panel that they had set up. Uh, that the districting was thrown out in court and they had to keep the old one. And that has caused enormous amounts of chaos for the Democrats in New York. I wouldn't be surprised if after November 8th, there are some shocks in New York as a result of all this mess that's been caused by that. You've got things where you had like uh, Congress people who've been together in the same party, in the same state and districts next to each other for decades. It's like basically close friends suddenly having to primary each other, which is <laughs> quite gruesome stuff. So it's a, it's a messy process. This it's a messy this, process. This, and this I, so, yeah, so I, I don't want to get into all of the arguments as to why <clears throat> it's better than the alternatives. Maybe it's not, but look, it's, uh, it's, it's what they've got. And in that context, uh, you know, they leave a lot of it to the mess of politics, but there is this limit that it can't be racist. So Congress passes that law in the 70s, and it's like, okay, you know, civil rights era, you know, Martin Luther King's been assassinated. America's trying to stop Jim Crow right, in the it's South. Just, and it's, and the it's this idea of, of, of giving black Americans this feeling like they really actually are part of the political process and are protected yeah. and are guaranteed that they won't just be cheated. And they're really, they're really racist. They really have been racist states. Uh, you know, governments in Georgia, Alabama, et cetera, that have been doing terrible things. And, and so the Fed... The, the national level reg legislation is imposing limits on what the states can do in order to uh, check their abuses of power. Then um, the Supreme Court of the United States rules that in order to figure this out, you have to apply a, a, an intent test. So if a state draws boundaries and you want to complain and you say this is racist, they're basically trying to disenfranchise black people in a kind of way. By, uh, by sprinkling, you know, redrawing the line so that they're sprinkled across many districts and they, they don't have a majority voting power anyway, then you have to prove that this is done deliberately. You know, find the proverbial WhatsApp message. Of course, there was no WhatsApp at the time, but there were analogs. Congress then said, okay, we, the court has said uh, that this is an intent test. That was not what we meant when we wrote the law. So then Congress changed the law to explicitly say there is no intent test here. We're just talking about results. And then a case happened called the Gingles case, which established the precedent for three, three tests that have to be passed, three steps you have to go through if you want to complain that there's been racist packing and cracking. So none of these steps involve intent. First, you have to show that there are the numbers. There are, there are enough black people to have an extra district and that they are sufficiently compact. Uh, you know, there are enough black people. They're, they're, it's, yeah, they can't be sprinkled in hamlets evenly across the whole state, in which case, like, you can't draw a district. Which, which by the way, I mean, South Africa gives a very good example of, 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 of that. Someone was asking me, like, if we had a thing like this in South Africa, in the free states, it would be very easy for there to be no majority white districts. Let's say 10% of the population is white. There's nowhere that's white because the amazing thing about apartheid is that like no white people wanted to do their own gardening or laundry. So wherever there was a white town, there was a black township next door. So at a district level, if you were going to have like 400 members of parliament, you were going to cut South Africa into 400 pieces. There's going to be no piece of the free states that isn't majority black because apartheid wasn't about keeping black people away. It was about keeping them 
close, but like not next door. You know, there's a sick system in that sense. Anyway, so you could never have a majority white district in the free state or northwest or and so on and so forth. Um, and likewise, because white people aren't compactly enough organized, um, likewise, you know, the the first test is to show that there's enough black people, but also that they're compactly enough. Uh, they're residing in a compact enough way that you could draw a district. Second test is you have to show that black people kind of all vote together. And then the third test, you kind of have to show that white people all vote together. You sort of, or, you know, there's different ways of phrase, phrasing that. Um, and then you do like an all things considered, is there anything else that might tilt your issue one way or another, sort of a vague uh, all things considered analysis. So now we're getting to the, 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 the technical challenge that the court was presented with. So the Alabama lawyers say that the first test, the first test was basically, can you draw a map? You're complaining. You don't like our map. It's got one black district, one majority minority district, they call it, majority of minorities. Can you draw two majority minority districts legally? They're saying that's the test. Can you legally draw two districts? And Alabama says you can't. Why? Because the complainant's own map drawers said, dude, we couldn't do this by accident. <laughs> it's We could only get a second black district on purpose. If you get a, a computer program and you put in all of the desired data for how map drawing is supposed to work. So it's actually, the maps look much less crazy than they looked even 15 years ago, by the way, because of the kind of introductions of independent boards, kind of review processes. Um, most states have at least put in rules about contiguity and compactness and, and distribution. Yeah, I've been looking at, while we're talking at Alabama's districts, and they are a little bit wonky. There's definitely some shenanigans going on here. But like, for example, I don't see anything much worse than, say, how Joburg is drawn as a municipality in, in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, so there's like a pulling along the along the river. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's a bit where traditional... so the bit that is the majority black district, it's like mostly normal. And then it has like a corridor down a major highway that just shoots out into the middle of one of the urban areas. <laughs> so you're like, silly. but it's still not, right. it's not as crazy as, as some of the ones in like Texas, which are like a, it's like a horseshoe shape. I mean, the <laughs> whole Texas is, a, is already a panhandle weirdo, you know, anyway, the, 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 their own, none of the map makers said that you could draw this thing on purpose. The computer algorithm, all the design rate, it doesn't ever draw uh, two black districts. Like it, it draws a million maps. All of them have one black district. Um, and their own their, their own map maker said, dude, you can't draw two black districts on accident. You have to do it on purpose. And so Alabama says, if we told our map makers or the other side, let's say the other side was in charge, the Democrats were in charge, whomever. If someone was in charge of Alabama and they said, to their map makers, here's what we want you to go and do. We want you to go and draw an electoral map. And one of the things we want you to do is make sure that there are at least two black districts, two majority minority districts. That would be totally illegal. You definitely can't do that. 
that is like what South Africans call a hard race quota. Um, that is that is not allowed. Like in America, you can do affirmative action in instances where um, there've been there's been di- direct evidence of um, prejudice, and where there's some kind of narrowly tailored and focused redress for that, which is passes a proportionality test, and also which avoids um, corrupting basic democratic institutions. So they're like, this is, you know, this doesn't, this just doesn't, this is nothing like the kind of affirmative action that you're allowed to do at a university that's been traditionally a bit racist. And you're like, we know that there's enough black kids to get into the school. We, so we're, we're going to say it'd be nice to have some more black kids, but we're not going to say, you know, no white kids allowed after the first hundred or something like that. This, this is just a hard quota. So that's their <laughs> argument. They say, if, they say the only way that you can draw this map is the way that they have drawn this map, and that's illegal. The other side doesn't contest that. They don't contest that it's illegal okay. <laughs> to right. draw the map this way. They say, okay, it's two steps. They say the original way that they drew the map, if that's how Alabama had drawn the map, that would be illegal. They agree, but they say the first Gingles test, the first step you have to go through, remember the first step is to draw a map, the second step is to show that blacks vote together, the third step is to show whites vote together. They say that first step of drawing a map, it doesn't mean you have to legally draw the map, it just has to show that you. it's possible to draw a map where black people are the majority in two districts, whether legally or not. And they say, so this is this is not a... They say once you've gone through these three steps, what that shows is that if there aren't two black districts in the way that you have drawn it, that means that there's an inequality of results, which is not vindicating the equality of political opportunity to black people. And therefore, you have shown racist harm. You have shown that the Alabama map is racist, not intent, but by result. And now you can go and draw a map. And now, because you've shown that it was racist, you can deliberately look at race in order to figure out the way that you do draw your map. So this is basically all about the following thing. The one side says, for you guys to come and show that there's a better way to do it than we did, you have to break the constitution. You have to deliberately set out to racially gerrymander the state. And and that's unacceptable. You have to deliberately try and get as many black districts as possible. And the other side says, in order for us to show that there's a problem with race, that the, that there's a that there's an unequal outcome on the basis of race, we have to look at race. We can't do this without looking at race. And you guys are telling us we mustn't look at race in order to figure out if this is racist. But look, the racism test is not about intent. The racism test is just, could there have been two black districts? Yes or no. And if there could have been, and there is less than that, then it's racist. Racism is inequality of outcome. And there's no way to establish inequality of outcome on the basis of race without looking at race. I think that's really a hard problem. That, that I think, down that road leads... um... It's madness. And I think the best person who wrote on this particular was um, Tom Sow, who just talked about how 
you don't see even distributions like anywhere in any industry, in any country, in any economic system of people in racial groups, cultural groups, whatever you want to define it. Um, so this dream of saying, no, no, well, we have to, this is what we've set as the, the goal. We have to reach this by any means necessary is inevitably going to cause some of the most funky, weird, twisted stuff. And I think probably just result in like a race version of what the Lebanese parliament looks like, which is uh, each religious group in Lebanon gets a certain number of seats and you register according to your religious group. And then you're only allowed to vote for parties in that particular um, block. And then there's a set number that each block gets uh, in seats in the parliament, which is uh, the kind of systems that send a shiver down my spine. And this looks like, you know, that uh, moving in that direction, obviously it's not going to do that exactly. But when you, when you basically say, look, we have to have not just racial representation here, but, not not just an attempted racial representation, but a, I think it does effectively end up in a hard quota. And to say that not having a hard quota, uh, sorry, not having the outcome that a hard quota would produce is racism is a bit crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, look, you and I, we work for the Institute of Race Relations because we really believe in non-racialism as, as the method um, of... Uh, realizing liberty um so i totally agree that uh this 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 you know i I know which side i'm on in 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 like my basic value judgment but i think what's interesting about this case is that it's a strong legal argument. argument and and it gets stronger because what justice jackson said um as did uh, Kagan. I must say, I, I struggled to follow Sotomayor at points. Um, uh, she 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 went down this road of like, you know, uh, it's all, she was like, you know, that other uh, established community, one of the desiderata for um, uh, uh, map drawing is that, you know, if something has been a town or a community for a long time, people have been voting within this region for a long time, uh, it's a community of interest. You, you you needn't split that. She's like, well, you know, this community interest in the Bay Area or whatever it's called is like, you know, it's just people who descended from like Germany and France or something. So that's also race. I was like, well, that's interesting in the sense that like I do think that there are bloodline stories to tell within the white race that are also race stories. I mean, Aryan is a race. Gale is a race. Slav is a race, et cetera. Um, but on the other hand, it seemed like a very off-the-cuff way of dismissing the thought that that community of interest had transcended the bloodline story and had become a community of interest on some other basis uh, right. in the way that like, I know, you know, Emerentia or Melville, you know, the, Melville is a community of interest, surely to goodness. Um, and I defy anyone to come and tell me what race Melville is um, yes. or Yeovil for that matter. <laughs> I mean, Yeovil is like, whoa, it's scattered all across uh, the African continent. And maybe most people are black, but they would not identify themselves mostly as being black. I know because I've asked, uh, you know, Nigerians and, and Ghanaians and Congolese in, in Yeovil, they don't say I'm black. They, they, it's sort of like a, a funny, <laughs> at least a lot of people I've spoken to consider that a sort of very funny way of, of, of grouping them. Right. But anyway, the, the uh, point is just what Jack, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. 
I just wanted to make a very brief point going back to uh, weird congressional districts. I've, I've sent you some photos now. Obviously, it's 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 audio only, so our audience can't see it, of the Texas 15th Congressional District, 7th Congressional District, and 2nd Congressional District. And these things are some wild shapes. The 15th Yo. is like a blocky snake that goes north to south along literally hundreds of kilometers <laughs> through the countryside. Uh, the seventh is like a, a kind of a, a horseshoe, except it's more square in the middle rather than round. Um, and the, no, but, the, but the, the second did. The, the second, second is incredible. <laughs> wow. So you it's, want to see a state with bad districting, go look at Alabama's congressional districts and then compare it to, to Texas. And you'll be like, okay, and now Alabama's, they've got some things right. <laughs> They're passing the smell test in a way that Texas is not. Okay, but so, so, so what Jackson would say, did say to this kind of point is, and the point is, look, this, this feels like you're putting your interpretation that it's okay to use an illegally racist way of drawing a map to compare it to the actual map in order to establish that the actual map is racist. I mean, that does sound funky. Okay. She, I'm not saying she makes this concession, but she, she's got two points. The one point is clearly when the 14th Amendment to the American Constitution was established after the Civil War, this amendment guaranteed equal rights to all people. The people who passed that very, very clearly had it in mind that laws were going to need to be passed, that, that black people had been enslaved, not all of them, but there were so many black slaves and there were so many white racists that there needed to be a ramping up of protections to, to bring uh, the status of black citizens up to the same place as the status of all citizens. And I'm not saying that is enough for affirmative action, but that's an important point to note. Uh, in, the other important point to note is that there is a kind of sunset clause or escape clause. Remember I said there are three Gingles tests. This whole debate has just been about the first one. And the first one is, do you need to draw a, a map in a racist way to prove the other map is racist? Or if you have to be racist to prove the other map is racist and then and it's not proving anything at all, um, and and the original map stands. Uh, okay, just shelve that question. Look at the second and third question. Alabamans are by and large voting by race, black and white. There are hardly ever black candidates that that black voters that white vote. That, there are hardly ever black Republican candidates. Is sort of one way to put it. And. And I do find it interesting. You know, you, you look at Rishi Sunak in the UK. You look at uh, Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court of the United States. You look at Thomas Sowell. Uh, and unless you're actually blind, you can't help but noticing that the, the right wing uh, has elevated people of color, to use that you know, weird term, has elevated black people or anybody, you know, it's, 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 it's unfair. It's always, it's unfair to suppose that, you know, wanting a more limited government since Booker T Washington duked it out with W.E.B. Dubois, you know, that's why I often go back to that bit of history. Um, after the civil war in America, the, 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 the main black uh, thought leader who was saying, 
look, the, the color every American loves best is green. And the best way to get through racism is to, is, is, is to just make money. And, and like, uh, that's what we need to go ahead and do. Um, and uh, he, 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 he clashed with a guy, W.E. Dubois, who had come back from Harvard and from the best universities in Germany and the University of Berlin and said, no, dude, uh, government made the problem. Uh, by pushing blacks down government needs to solve the problem by pushing blacks up governments need to be sensitive to races and choose their favorite races um uh, in in order to elevate them and and black people you know his lecture series was called the conservation of races he was terrified in the 1890s that black people were going to give up on the notion of being black before anything else we're going to give up on race solidarity in in the name of materialistic pursuits or a kind of uh, religious transcendental notion in which uh you know the soul has no color he wrote a, his first book was called the color of souls um and there are different ways of reading that but i don't think any of them uh avoid uh the thought that he thought spiritually soulfully at the at the deepest possible level black people are different to white people and that they should say that way and that it'd be a betrayal of the difference that god imbued in the world for for us for american citizens to 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 mold into one culture or to have a variety of cultures that don't cut on racial lines but instead cut on other lines uh and dubois won the day i would say largely because of white burden supremacists uh having their fingers on the scales and having enough disproportionate wealth and so on to 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 shut down um black classical liberals um and and to and to you know uh, just give so much, put so much wind in the sails of of, of black nationalists, um, communitarians, and so on. Uh, that that the that the next century is kind of not all that surprising, but within that context, um, it is still the case that that you know the Republicans in the U.S. and the and the Tories in the U.K. Uh, have had their. Uh, within their ranks and uh, up and down the line, you know, uh, important people, people, very respected people who have not been white. Um, and that all being said, you know, if in Alabama, the next uh, series of congressional leaders coming forward were out of the Republican side, uh, were uh, included many black conservatives, that would provide an escape clause. Then the Gingles test wouldn't apply. Then no matter if 50% of the state is black and only one of the districts is majority minority, uh, you wouldn't be able to uh, force the state to redraw its map because you wouldn't pass the test of like, are all the white people in general voting for, for, for white leaders and are all the black people in general voting for black leaders? And I've got to tell you, I don't know what Alabama's like. I don't know. You know, sometimes I get my head in a very, uh, in the, some, you know, I talked about last week coming across this woman who said she's proud to be white with cameras around and people around. That amazed me. Like I've only seen that a couple of times in my life. And usually it's been like very poor people that are down on their luck. This is like a well-to-do person. I don't know how much, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that this escape clause isn't as good as I'd want it to be because 
because there's a chicken egg problem. Like for sure, if Alabama, if if the if the if the Democrats, I mean the Democrats are never going to run a white candidate in the black district. Do you think they're ever going to do that? Like no, no. Because particularly because the Democratic Party is made up of of these kind of very factional interest group types. And they explicitly have, the black caucus, well, yeah, explicitly. the black caucus and stuff. And so the black caucus would would consider it a betrayal if the party, even if there was you know uh, a genuine enthusiasm for a white and amazing, black exactly. area, right? Yeah. Even if the primary voters were keen on it, the 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 sort of federal party would probably try to block. I mean, they might not necessarily be successful, but they'd be very upset. Let's say no. This is you know, undermining black representativity, and it's a white people stealing black people's positions, and that kind of thing. So, 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 we're on the same page, man. I mean, I think, I, I, I think that the the effect of saying the the only escape clause is for something to happen that the political party is disincentivized from doing. And the test going into it is, is like overtly, you know, you can be a racist in order to prove the other guys are racist. And if you do black racism, Trump's white racism, that is just how it seems to me. Um, that seems to me to, to be a very harsh way of characterizing the position that I think Sotomayor and Kagan and um, Jackson uh, committed themselves to and the position that the federal attorney general committed himself to uh, the, you know, the, 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 the main lawyer for America in, in the arguments that he made, it just, uh, it did sound a bit like that, but I think that intelligent, uh, smart people are, are happy to swallow that position because, and this is one of the interesting things about it is I, I do think language does a hell of a lot. I really do think we think in words and, and so sometimes Nicholas gets irritated with me for for picking on words that people use that I think are betrayals of 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 good thinking. And I certainly, especially, well, a lot of the time, I, I'm I'm very silly and I use the wrong words. I kept talking about discovery instead of diskin. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big yes. problem, with you. <laughs> but when people talk about group rights. At least if they're explicit and they're saying, like, look, I think the black group has a political interest, then then you know what you're dealing with. Um, but there's this kind of slippage from like individual rights to talk about. I don't know how you get from the from an individual right as a voter, a right that each individual has to vote, to talk about inequality of political opportunity. Because on on this test where it's like, well, we we're allowed to deliberately think of you as a member of a race group where the whole race group is going to vote one way, and we're allowed to do that in a way that entrenches that behavior, that incentivizes Team Black to to operate as a group, um, and to punish those who deviate and go for the Republicans and say they're sellouts, and to punish white people who try and represent districts that are majority black, etc. We will entrench this way of doing things. We're going to solidify this way of doing things. Um, I'm going to start out the assumption that black people 
do vote together and then we're going to make it more likely that they will vote together. Uh, I don't know, in order to do what? In order to equalize the political opportunity of whom? Well, of the group, of the black group, of Team Black. That makes sense to me. To equalize the political opportunity of the individuals involved, that no longer makes sense to me. And I think if you go and listen to the oral arguments, and certainly you can see it in the in the in some of the written stuff coming out of the stay order that was granted at the start of the year, you see this slip from talk of um, the interests of black individuals to the, the interests of the black group or the interests of the black electorate or the interests of blacks. And it and it really um I think it really is just in that little linguistic slip. So they so in America they're not really don't have a group rights schema in the same way that South Africa does. So they can't explicitly make a commitment to group rights. But it just slips in there. There's there's talk about like black interests or black groups uh representation and so on. And where where I think one can at least um perhaps notice where where we come apart uh you know uh, i and 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 part of what's gloomy you know i think part of what may be good about that is in america if you have a, a, a fairly solidly established principle of individual rights um and where the kinds of group rights that there are are states rights federal systems rights persona ficta you know businesses or groups that have kinds of rights and duties, but where if races don't automatically qualify as, as being the kind of group that gets rights, I think they've got the, you know, I think Clarence Thomas and and and, and Alito um, are, look, by the way, who's going to vote which way? I can't tell. From the questions and answers, it sounded very much like Kavanaugh is with the Democrats. Roberts sounds like he's with the Democrats in the sense that he thinks they've made the argument that, sorry, when I say the Democrats, I really mean the, the, left the, the plaintiffs. Point. The, 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 the ones who yeah. want to redistrict it in a way that the Democrats are more likely to win another seat. But the, uh, I don't know how they're going to vote, but I think that yeah, this, in general, this is just a reminder will go the right that, way. In South Africa, it's very different. Right. This is, this is just a reminder that the Supreme Court really isn't just full of partisan automatons, despite the way that it's threatened. Yeah, there are probably justices who are a little bit more partisan than the others. But at the end of the day, you often actually can't tell exactly how everyone is going to vote on a thing unless they've written on the subject before. Well, not by partisanship. You can tell where Thomas is going to vote because that guy... (laughs) Because he's the grumpiest, most conservative man in America. (laughs) 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 But I think... but. You know, he has the one everyone must stop whinging and just get on with it. <laughs> he, it is, and he. The amazing thing is, like in this case, in two others in the in the in in the last cycle, like the question that he asks right at the beginning of the thing, is just the question that, like, after two hours you come back and then you think about it for two hours and you come back and you're like, okay, I think that kind of maybe is the question. And it's so weird when it starts it because it never seems impressive. He always gets the first question because he's so from this, you know, for years and years, he didn't say anything. And I first got to know him as like, you know, someone that Stephen Colbert would make fun of on late night TV shows as like the black conservative dude, you know, the, the Oreo cookie that white people put there, uh, white terrible Republicans put in place. Uh, and you can tell that he's just like an empty shell because he never says anything on the court. 
Um, and the heat started to get turned up on like, why does Clarence Thomas never say anything? Uh, is he still competent? Is he too old? Like, is he, you know, the other people would say like, he's black enough to know that it's very terrible what's happening in America. And yet he's stuck uh, in this sort of playing this white role of being a conservative. And so he doesn't say anything because it would betray that. I read that in the, in the New York times um, uh, back when I was a student. And I thought that that was a, a, a pretty pugnacious thing to say, but I, I did not disqualify it as possibly being true because what evidence did I have to go on? I hadn't, I hadn't heard him say anything myself. And uh, I don't know. I was, you know, but but anyway, he 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 then explained that he doesn't like the way they have to interrupt each other if they go later on in the queue. So John Roberts just always makes him go first because he's like, I'm from the South and we don't like interrupting <laughs> one another. We like talking slowly <laughs> and we and we don't like interrupting. So he's like, Well, you go first then. And you're you're old and you know you're you're sort of the ranking gent, so so go ahead. But anyway, you know, you know, and he, he asks really good questions. <laughs> Yeah. You know, Thomas is famous for knowing the names of like literally everyone in the Supreme Court building and all of their family histories and what's going on with their lives. Uh, the, the, the other, the more lefty justices often bring this up when they go and they talk at some function and some like weird progressive actress stands up and says, how do you even stand being in the room, in the same room as Clarence Thomas? And then they're like, well, you know, we just have a different point of view, but he's actually a really nice guy uh, on a lot of things. Um, Did I think, I think was, it was either Kagan or Sotomayor recently said, "Yeah, you know the difference between me and him is he thinks that because he came from poverty uh, and and got somewhere that everyone else can do the same, and that you're being a bit of a wimp if you don't do that, and that's where we come apart." That's a fairly succinct. I think that's simplifying it, but I think that's actually quite a succinct way of. Yeah, that he's got quite I mean, a hard-assed I- approach to to government responsibilities and, and people. I think that's right. I think he also, in a certain... I, I think that sometimes I think that... Look, this is definitely a very sympathetic way of describing things for uh, people like Thomas and against people like Stephen Breyer, uh, who's the retired uh, dude who you know Briar really did say you know it's like you know how do you how do you how do you do what you do well you close your eyes and you think about what's right and what's wrong here and then you look at the law and you find an instrument to bring about the result that you know is <laughs> yes. right and thomas is like i i think i think terrified the you know the the textualists the originalists but really the originalists i'm i'm not as into but the textualists um are the, the textualist impulse is is I think born out of a, is born out of a pessimistic view about humanity, a Hobbesian view that if you leave it up to the the wisdom of individual discretion, that is right. that is just going to have priests to interpret entrails, yeah, and and that is really 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 harmful and scary, and it's very nice to live in a medieval society if you're in the upper class, but it's precisely a bit of lower class experience that makes you terrified of of uh, noblesse oblige of uh, you know grand ladies 
who might throw a pearl necklace at a at a maid that they like, uh, but might also uh, back up a false allegation of the hanky panky and have the and have the garden boy uh, hung by his neck until death because you know some you know there's just all kinds of scary things that happen if you don't have due process and 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 you don't have the maximum sort of predictable stable way of adjudicating who gets punished so you know i think yeah i think it's it's partly about like he feels he can he can climb up the ladder so other people should also be able to climb up the ladder but i think it's partly that someone like that he feels the ladder is made out of predictable stable interpretation of words on a page yeah right and and that and that people can also climb up or fly up by being elevated by by uh, by by sweet talk um but that that the flip side of that sweet talk is is well yeah he believes in doing this raining fire down on on the not in this wiggledy piggledy nonsense <laughs> but, I'm using so very that, terms here, but I think I'm getting my point across. That is that is a sympathetic. I mean, but of course, on the other side, there is the, there is the very serious concern that, um, especially with a thing like gerrymandering, I think part of why this is, although my impulse is um, to go the one way, uh, I I really wouldn't. If I was sitting in their position, I wouldn't know which way to rule mm. on this because. I like. I think the text is very, very important. And if the text of Congress says this, and the text of the Fourteenth Amendment says that, and it allows for this kind of process to go through, where you do just check what is the ratio, and is there, if you deliberately set out to do it, a way to get two majority black districts, if 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 that's what the law says, then that is what should happen. I think, mm. um, because that's because a- it's precisely that predictable text, and the, and maybe the law needs to be like that for gerrymandering cases, because gerrymandering is such a weird thing where politicians are choosing who gets to vote for them. No, I don't no, know. It, gerrymandering is a very serious problem and it's difficult, I think, to solve without completely abolishing the system. And then you get all sorts of other negative consequences that come from, because, you know, their constituency systems have a lot of good to recommend them. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you that it's, it's not something you want to just kind of, take lightly and say oh well of course this is nonsense like when you're drawing districts and and distributing political power essentially i agree you do have to be very thoughtful and careful because if you're not um you can create you can create a space for political weasels to hijack the system in very nefarious ways so so let's bring it back to south africa because because this is the kind of case that south africans should think about we are entering the constitutional court rule that you must allow independent candidates. Now, I'm I'm not sure that I... In fact, I can tell you I disagree with that ruling. And I've read the majority. I've read the dissent. The dissent clearly identifies the crucial error in our majority judgment as uh, taking uh, uh, basically a silence in the Constitution to be a confirmation that you've got to go one way. The Constitution explicitly says that we've all got the right to political representation. We've all got the right to run for office. It lays out certain things. In the municipal context, it also specifically mandates a, a, a mixed system where you have both constituencies and proportional representation. In the national and provincial level, it doesn't do that. Insofar as there are constituencies, it establishes the NCOP uh, as a kind of, uh, right, so far as the provinces. 
That's as close as we get. And, and, the, and the dissenting opinion says, you know, if the Constitution thought that it was necessary to let anything like constituencies or anything like a mixed system to take place at that level, it never would have split the two ideas across differently and made it explicit that you have to go one way in municipalities and then being silent on which way you're supposed to do it at national and provincial level. Now, it is the case that uh, the government in arguing for maintaining the status quo had said, look, the silence of the constitution on the national and provincial level, this means we're disqualified from having constituencies or disqualified from allowing independence to run within uh, uh, off of party lists because those are separate questions, but they're practically connected. They're not textually connected. But the silence shouldn't be read as requiring it or disqualifying it. The, the, the silence should be read as saying that this is open to statute. And right. the majority just 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 did a classic um, make it up as you go kind of constitutional thing <laughs> of saying, well, we can't show you where it's written in the text that you have to be able to run as an independent candidate. Uh, but it says you have to be able to run for office. And we think that means you should be able to run for office whichever way you like. And, what is uh, how, does does the judgment make the distinction between an individual who starts a political party called the Me Party? which is to represent themselves and an independent who's not part of a party. Because in practical yes. terms, this is the same thing. Yes, insofar as it recognizes that once you've started a meat party, depending on the constitution of that party, you could not in the end be the leader of that party, especially if you get multiple uh, seats and then the other people in the party want to get rid of you on the basis that you didn't do the right thing for the party. <laughs> so there is that difference. <laughs> but it's but it's but there's nothing there's dude there is nothing in the constitution that says you you are allowed to run for office in such a fashion that you can never be uh, uh, removed by doing so well that you have other people that fall under your political wing and then they want to get rid of you because you've broken the party line like it's a weird thing to think you have the right to no, it's 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 nonsense. The only way to make sense of it, the only way to make sense of it is to say, well, we have the right to a constituency system, and the constitution very very clearly says there's got to be some constituency stuff at municipal level, and very clearly doesn't say that at national. Anyway, so the constitutional court made this argument, and most people in civil society, including in our camp, have been very enthusiastic about this. They love the idea of independent candidates. And then they draw the logical conclusion that once you're allowed independent candidates, uh, you know, if an independent candidate gets 200,000 votes, they're still only getting one seat and an extra 100,000 votes is going nowhere. And, you know, you could say it's going nowhere or you could say that it's uh, effectively going to, in some sense, to larger parties. And people don't like that idea. And how are you as an independent candidate then going to actually make any headway? Because if you're doing really well, if it looks like you might get 200,000 votes, the DA is going to say, dude, if you're an opposition candidate, please, you know, if you're an opposition voter, don't vote for this guy because most of the votes that he gets or she gets are end up going to go to the ANC in a kind of way. Uh, yes, if you could get in a WhatsApp group and be like, us 100,000, we're going to vote for him and we tell everyone else not to vote for him, then it would work. But that's a very hard WhatsApp group to establish 
And so in between, they're either not going to get well, anywhere. Least of all, just... because you can't make a WhatsApp group 100,000 big. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it could be a Facebook group. But, you know, it's, it's a really weird thing. Like now, in order to not waste votes, you have to try and like coordinate who's going to vote for this candidate and then set a cap so that more people don't vote for this right. candidate. No one likes that idea. So then they try and establish a constituency system because it's the only way to kind of ameliorate that. And yeah, exactly. dude, I've got to tell you, I'm flipping terrified. I've, this guy's made public comments that I can address. Mike Atkins, he's one of these dudes who's, who's like very keen for this and he's publishing a policy document for the Institute of Race Relations. You know what's coming down the pipeline? You know what sort of a lot of people in our camp are arguing for, a lot of South Africans are now arguing for? They want a more constituency-based system. We're like, you know, in America, the, the Democrats, the everyone's arguing, like, we don't want a constituency-based system. We want PR. We hate the fact that Trump got less votes, but Hillary Clinton... Uh, right. You, you see this... Sorry, uh, Trump got more votes, but... Yes. These, these arguments are most intense, I think, actually, in the UK, where you yeah. get a majority of seats with, like, depending on who you are, like 35% of the votes or something, or 36, 37. So traditionally speaking, so I'm telling you now, the next 40 years of South African politics, the ANC, if it doesn't completely ruin itself, it could, could easily come back into power, even if other parties don't. Dude, one of the biggest things is going to be how this electoral system plays out. I don't know that we've been arguing the right side of this. We're going to, if we get more and more constituency-based, which is a direction that a lot of people are pushing for, constituencies tend to benefit two kinds of parties. Firstly, rural parties. The Republicans, the Tories, there's a very good reason that they uh, get more out of a constituency. The Nats in 48. The Nats in 48, the rural parties. Okay, so we're getting more constituencies. The ANC, 45%. How much of a gap is there going to be? Well, the Constitution says, I'll get to that. The second kind of thing is parties that are willing to exploit group rights, uh, legislative principles, judicial principles, in order to gerrymander things the way they want it. And thirdly, right. the parties that are willing to just be outright corrupt. No, I agree. I have this I have this concern as well. And I... <laughs> the ANC ticks all three boxes, I've, dude. I've kind of, I've kind of always thought that, um, you know, uh, I, in a in a perfect South Africa, I would like a constituency, a mixed system, because I don't believe that you should have a hundred percent constituency. But I think that the ANC is so opposed to the rule of law and fair play that it basically can't be in power and have any power to draw those constituencies, because they will draw them in such a horrifically unfair, ridiculous way, especially if they think that they're going to be facing votes, it is going to make those congressional districts in Texas look like nothing. Uh, dude, I, and if you I'm, think these racial arguments are flavorsome, <laughs> dude, there's going to be, there's going to be all kinds of representativity. Oh my word. It's going to be, dude. And imagine like, if you really want South Africa to get madly tribalist, Create a legitimate political avenue for people to say, you know, there's not enough vendor representation in the constituency mm. system, or there's too much Zulu, or not enough Kosa, or too much this. Dude, this country can. It's already fighting over the borders of municipalities along tribal lines in places like Limpopo. 
Service delivery protests, you know, the, the first genuinely harsh, violent service delivery protests back in the mid-2000s that kind of reignited a kind of uh, transition era look of burning tires on the streets and people were getting killed. And it was like, what are you protesting? It was redistricting municipalities. Mm. This is this is not a game we want to play in this country. It is a yeah, not uh, right, not right now for sure. <laughs> when, when everyone is being at full. Look, on the and, other hand, the other the alternative is that um, a constituency system will break the centralized hold of the ANC on its own members, and that you will get uh, not. I wouldn't call them good political actors but uh, a multitude of political actors establishing fiefdoms for themselves in these rural areas. And so the ANC won't be a hegemonic block that controls all the rural areas because they'll fracture along the underlying lines of what the party looks like underneath, right? And maybe most of them will vote with the ANC in parliament, but also some of them won't because they have different interests or they're trying to punish a certain ANC faction or something like that. Um, That's a more optimistic view, I suppose. So why don't just, just... One other thing. The Constitution does guarantee, what is it? Rough proportional representation? You've got to love constitutional when the Constitution stands like that. I, 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 I want to see my friends and I like. belong to this, this, this um, like silly little internal discussion group, right? And we wrote a joking Constitution for it. And um, one of the terms used in it, specifically to make fun of this kind of thing, is the term rough consensus. <laughs> that someone can oh, be deemed an enemy of the state, uh, effectively, <laughs> by rough consensus. <laughs> so that, I'm always very suspicious. Consensus of, where you, is, that, is that consensus where you, like, you take off your... So what it means in practice is the people who shout the loudest... Can can uh, and get their voices the most heard. Can decide. So the South African the South African Constitution guarantees, uh, and this is uh, uh, chapter forty. This is section forty six. Uh, composition and election of the National Assembly. The National Assembly results in general in proportional representation, and there's. There's a there's a diachronous and a synchronous way of reading that. So you could say results in general in proportional representation means sometimes it can be quite far from PR and sometimes it'll be exact. But like if you have 10 elections, if you look over the period of a century, over 50 elections, most of those elections are going to be pretty close to proportional representation. And Nicholas has wrote a piece recently about polling or a report that's going to come out. And, you know, he makes the point that polls... Yeah. Uh, in general, are pretty on point. But sometimes right. they're really off they, to the one miss, side yeah. or they're really off to the other side. Yeah. Um, so their average miss, uh, this is about the US midterms, and their average miss is about 2% over a long period of time. But on any particular case, could be quite, you could have an 8%. Miss. Yeah, you can have 8% or you can have zero. Uh, so, yeah. 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 So another way to think about in general is that on any given instance, it's got to be within 0.5% or something. Yeah. Now pick your number because here's a dilemma. The constitution in section 195, what is it? 197 
provides for broad representativity in the civil service and in the judiciary into alia and i think broad representativity and in general in proportion representation are different words and so you can use broad to mean something to in different to in general but i can also see how an intelligent person draws a connection between those two relations so Broad representativity is basically has been read as like racially speaking, if the if the country is 80% black, 10% colored, 10% white, 2% Indian, doesn't add up to 100, but that's fine. Um, if that's how it is, broadly speaking, then in the police force, you need to have, well, some people say it needs to be 80% black, 10% colored, 10% white, 2% Indian. And in fact, in the police force, in the Naidu case, this famous... The one time that um, uh, race law was struck down was when the police denied, denied uh, a, a lady, a, a, a woman, a citizen, who, whose surname was Naidu, elevation to one of the highest ranks in the police force because they said at that rank they already had the ideal number of Indian women. 0. 0.5. Zero. 0. 0.4. Zero. Zero. <laughs> the ideal number is in inverted commas. That is exactly the phrase that they used. They used a mathematical formula to calculate what the ideal number of Indian women would be. And basically, they took the national proportion and they divided it up. And because there's only 50 people at that level, you know, it's like there's like 0.5% of the population is Indian women or whatever it is. So out of every 50 people, that means 0.25. And they said if it's below 0.5, you round down. So the ideal number of Indian women... <laughs> Zero in the Naidu case, and no, look, these these potentials for shenanigans exist, but uh, I think our court has, in this independence case, has actually showed its ability to not be textualist. Yeah, but slow down. And you know, yeah, you're saying there's wiggle. I'm saying the wiggle. There's there's a tension here because the more you want to make broad, so broad representativity, it can't mean that. So, but maybe broad representativity just means this. Um, as long as there are some black people, some white people, some Indians, some coloreds in the police force, that's okay. So even if it's 80% of the country is black, if 50% of the police are black, that's fine. Even if only 2% of the country is Indian, if 10% of the country's police force is Indian, that's okay. Now take that back to the electoral constituency deviation from proportional representation point. If, in general, in proportional representation means that the ANC can get 40% of the vote, but 50% of the seats in parliament, that's a 10-point swing. Now, you're sitting with a problem of you, you don't want the ANC to get 10% more or 15% more, but as a non-racialist, you also don't want the... Um, so you want to say, in general, in proportional representation, it can only be plus or minus half a percent. The ANC gets 40% of the votes, it can get 41% of the seats, plus or minus 1%, maybe 2%. The ANC gets 40% of the votes, it gets 42% of the seats maximum. But if you're saying it can deviate by 2% on that, I think that gets taken to 195, 197. That's, then that means on the constitutional court, it's got to be within 2% racially representative. And on the Supreme Court of Appeal and across the high courts of the country, it's got to be within 2% representative. And if you don't think it's going to work out that way, 
have a cup of tea and I'll, I'll meet you in South Africa because it is going to work out that way. Because <laughs> <sighs> there's people here that are incentivized to make it work that way and there's very little to stop it. So I, so I'm just saying, dude. This American case, it's fascinating to me. It's difficult. No, it's a good. Take point. this we, to South Africa. Yeah. We need to, we need to keep an eye on it. Um, ugh, but you know, <laughs> let's cross that bridge. Let's cross that bridge when we come to it. Let's never come time. to that bridge. Let's stay away from Look, that bridge. Look, I'd like to. I'd like to. But I, you've you make a compelling case that at some point we're going to have to cross this bridge of nonsense. <laughs> And then when we cross this bridge of nonsense, we'll have to figure out a solution. I'm sure we'll figure one out. Uh, but we are over time um, yeah, because yeah. I need to go and pack things and cry. Um, <laughs> so do you have do you have any recommendations? Uh, I couldn't think of one except to say that you should probably check out at least a couple of clips from the Oz Fetterman debate in Pennsylvania in the U U.S. So it's two Senate candidates. I can't remember Fetterman's. Or even Oz's first names, actually. But anyway, Oz is a Republican. He was like a celebrity doctor on the Oprah show. Got big endorsement by Trump, which allowed him to just squeak over the line in the Republican primary. Generally considered not a great candidate um, uh, for many reasons. But uh, America, in showing that its political system continues to produce poor results, uh, Fetterman, the Democratic candidate, in May had a massive stroke. And yet, instead of pulling out of the race, he decided that he was going to keep going. And his campaign kind of kept him away from media and debates and things. And said, no, no, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's fine. And finally, they agreed to a debate. Um, it emerged in subsequent reporting that his stroke was very severe in the sense that he cannot, for example, hear and interpret words correctly. Um, he can read fine. And his like mental faculties seem to be fine. He just can't hear properly. And uh, so they said, okay, well, like because of this, we'll it's only... like oral dyslexia is my understanding. Yeah, kind of. Uh, we'll only agree to a debate if there's like a special teleprompter, which is live telling, uh, which he can read, which will show him what the, um, what his opponent is actually saying to him and what the moderators are saying to him. So they finally agreed to that. They waited for, I think, two or three weeks of early voting having already taken place because there's another topic for another day, but how ridiculously lenient American voting laws are. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, let's just say he struggled in that debate. He, he really struggled to put sentences together. Um, he started off by saying, hi, everyone, good night. Um, and it was just a tough time in general for him. And you can see that the dude, the dude is struggling and he probably should have resigned. And the fact that the party thought that it could push him through and, and kind of cover up that the guy was struggling uh, is not good. It's not good for his own health, clearly, because this is a pretty stressful thing to go through. It's not good for the debate because it meant that now everything has to be graded kind of on a silly scale of, oh, well, he did okay for someone who had a stroke recently. Um, it's just all a mess, actually, quite frankly. And I'm just really kind of a bit grossed out by what's going on in that Pennsylvania race. Because I also think that Oz is a bit of a unpleasant guy for my own re for, for completely different reasons but it's just it just makes you, you look at that senate race and you kind of think to yourself oh man the u.s is just not its political system is not going doing great right now um there's even a cynical argument to be made that it doesn't even matter whether he can properly give speeches or articulate points of view because the senate and the legislature have become such 
ridiculous partisan rubber stamps where senators tend to not do anything useful anyway, that all it matters is how you know you push the button. And in fact, some Democrats have made that argument explicitly in response to the the how people have been looking at this debate. Um, anyway, I just hope this dude recovers, uh, whether he wins the election or not, because it's all such a mess. Yeah. So, yes, that's my recommendation. Watch a little bit of that debate see if you agree with me. Did I? Yeah. It's tough. I I want to recommend this the that I'm I'm going to put the link to the to the Milligan case uh, because yeah anyone who listens to podcasts I I, I want to get people hooked on on listening to Scotus um, if you haven't listened to one just listen to the first ten minutes um, it know that you know you get you you hear the one side first and and the guy who comes out from Alabama he sort of comes out swinging as a non-racialist kind of going going sort of quite maybe stridently on principle in a way that uh, brings out some stridency from the other side. But then it kind of gets reined in by the chief justice and then it gets quite technical, then it gets quite principled again, then it gets quite factual. And it kind of moves around. And then you have the next lawyer coming from the American government side and then the next lawyer coming from the complainant side. So you, you really get like three different conversations and then you get a, a kind of, return back to the beginning because the first guy comes and makes it like a, just a final speech that's uninterrupted. But the rest of it's they interrupt each other. No one speaks for more than a minute and a half or two minutes at a time. Usually there's a lot of more back and forth than that. Um, so I, I, I think that the thing that I, the, the, the main thing that I, that, that might be useful to come away with is is or just a thing to bear in mind on top of everything else that we've said is like whatever you think is morally right or wrong even if like nicholas and i you think just straightforwardly there's just no ways that the law should be racially bean counting um uh, uh, as a, as a way to, you know, that, that the ways to guard against racism need to not require this, like, equality of results analysis, that there's, that there's got to be a better way of, of vindicating uh, the, 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 the rights that, that, that humans deserve within a well-ordered constitutional democracy that's reason-responsive and has consensual government and so on. That the route from where we are to getting there, that there are different routes, one route would be to say, well, the law requires things to go the way that the plaintiffs argue. And then Congress needs to change the law. That is a huge step that I think in court cases, people ignore. You know, they want the judgment mm. to go their way. They don't yeah, like... That's generally the my that, view. The, no, let the judgment go against me because really what happens is the judges just need to apply the we law. We need to show that the law needs to be changed. Change right. the law. Exactly. That is an option. That's a very important option. And exactly. It, and listen to it. Think about legislatures it. are lazy. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't do their they job. Wanna, they want to offload the work. Anyway, so 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 listen to the thing. Bear that in mind. Um, uh, and 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 as an aside, yeah. I mean, I kind of am tempted to put like as a recommendation something about Elon Musk and Twitter because there's some funny things about it. And because I'm so excited, I really am excited that he will open the database for further investigation by academics and journalists, because I think the yeah. only way forward is that. 
Um, but I, that's a story I, for another I, day. I, yeah, I guess I think I probably actually surprisingly little will change. But yeah, no, I don't think so. I think we did. If we if we need to apply some pressure, man. <laughs> Open up the anyway. database. Open up the database. Uh, no, that would be. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I just don't know if that kind of thing will happen. Um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, that's all the time we have for today. I think so. Uh, while I go off to to pack and you go off to weekend, I hope that everyone listening has a great time. And uh, yeah, keep that flag of liberty flying.